Welcome to Waterstone Community Church. In this series, we are delving into the second half of the Gospel of Mark. We will study how Jesus challenges others' expectations of who the Messiah ought to be. As he goes on to be crucified and vanquished death, we will discuss what he taught his disciples along the way. Waterstone is located off of C-470 in Bowles in Littleton, Colorado. Our weekly services are held on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Learn more about us at waterstonechurch.org. A reading from Mark 14. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. The word of the Lord. We were so excited to celebrate Emily's baptism that we forgot to invite our ushers forward to receive this morning's offering. So I'm going to invite them to come forward now. You know, one of the reasons we asked you that question to get to know your neighbors about being lost is because it's something we can all relate to. We all like to know where we're going and how to get there. And that's great until our GPS system doesn't work. I remember a couple summers ago, my two youngest kids, Aubrey, Micah, and I, were up in Winter Park, and we decided to go on a drive up into one of the high mountains following my GPS system on our phone. In fact, did you know 90% of us have GPS built into our phone? That's how common it is now. So I'm following my GPS up to the top of this mountain and get to the top and it takes me to a dead end, which would have been fine except that I was so far out of range that my map blocked out and I didn't know where I was. And we had taken so many turns up the mountain that I had no idea how to get back. And on top of that, it was starting to get dark. So I'm going through the process in my head of how I'm going to keep my kids and myself warm and safe in the middle of the mountains if we have to spend the night, while my kids are in the back of the car giggling because they're creating a playlist of songs like Coldplay's Lost and Taylor Swift's Out of the Woods. (laughs) You know, we laugh because we can all relate. We've all gotten lost at some point because our GPS system has misnavigated us. But there are two stories that, in my opinion, take the cake. The first is this. Perhaps after spending too much time at the 19th hole, a woman in Northbridge, Massachusetts, drove her car into a sand trap on a golf course. She was unable to extricate herself without going well over par. (laughs) This was, of course, not her fault. Her car's malfunctioning GPS navigational system was to blame. Northbridge police officer Randy Lloyd wrote in his report that her GPS had told her to turn left. She stated that left brought her into a cornfield, and once she was in the field, she kept driving, trying to get out. Life is tough sometimes. Or how about this gentleman? A Swiss van driver and his vehicle had to be rescued by helicopter after his GPS sent him up a remote mountain footpath Driver Robert Ziegler, 37, found himself stranded near the peak at Bergam, Switzerland, unable to go forward or turn around to go back the way he came. Rescue workers scrambled a heavy lifting helicopter to carry the van and its driver to safety after he dialed for help on his mobile phone. I was lost, and I kept hoping that each little turn would get me back to the main road. In the end, it told me to turn around, but of course I couldn't by then. This is what the driver told the police. A fire brigade spokesman explained, 
He claims he didn't see this, any footpath signs, but he must have been a pretty fair driver to get that far up a glorified goat track. <laughs> Maybe there is a reason that the navigational system of choice for centuries was the compass. The compass is a much simpler navigation device. It's based off of a dial that's navigated to always point towards true north based off of a magnetic system. You have to recalibrate on occasion because polar north or magnetic north shifts slightly each year, but as long as you're calibrated to that pointing north, you always know what direction to go. It comes in handy, especially if you're lost in the woods. While we oftentimes look at this image of the compass and we think about our physical navigation, I'd like to suggest that it's also a great illustration for our relationship with Jesus, for our spiritual navigation. In fact, I'd like to suggest that the book of Mark actually serves as a bit of a compass. It starts out by telling us that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. From the very first line, Mark tells us what true north is. It's the person of Jesus. And throughout the book of Mark, he then goes on to explain that that's the one person we need to keep our eye on if we truly want to get to where we're going. If you've been here the last few weeks, you know that we're in the midst of the second part of our series on Mark, where we're really looking at who is this Jesus, the Messiah? Is he really the person he claims to be? And today, we're going to dive further into Mark chapter 14, where he sets up um, he kind of speaks to our curiosity. We're starting to wonder, well, what happens next as we're coming to the climax of the story? And today we're going to hear about three different characters and their response to Jesus as that true north navigating system. But before we get into that, let me pray for us. God, thank you for the opportunity to gather together corporately to worship you. Thank you for the symbolism of baptism and the reminder of the joy that we find in following you, for the grace that you give us, and for the incredible love that you represent by caring so much for us that you came into our broken world, lived a good life, died a brutal death, and were resurrected to defeat sin and Satan. God, would you give us ears to hear today as you share our word with us and help us to understand how we can navigate ourselves towards you through the responses that we give. In your name we pray, amen. <clears throat> All right, so Mark 14 does something really interesting. He, the first part of it, we're just gonna really focus on the first 12 chapters or verses. And the first two give us a glimpse into our um, number one character. Let me reread it for us. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. You know, the Passover is a time in Jerusalem where people travel from all over the region to come and celebrate. They're coming together um, to celebrate Israel's exit, Jesus is, or I'm sorry, God's coming into the world to deliver them from the Israelites. And so here they're all coming together, and the city itself 
grows in size. In fact, um, scholars would say that it doubles or triples in size. Think of us hosting the Super Bowl here in Denver. The Broncos are playing the Patriots. All of the people that travel into the Super Bowl, and all of a sudden, you've got more people on your hands than you can handle. That's what's going on in the midst of the Passover. Um, We see in here that there's uh, some sort of a tension between the chief priests and the teachers of the law because they're scheming to arrest Jesus. This isn't anything new. This has been going on the entire time that we've been studying Jesus in the book of Mark. They are, they're clashing with him. What they believe in and the values they hold are different from the values that Jesus is bringing. And so throughout the time, they've tried to discredit him by denying him in front of the crowds that are following Jesus, but when that doesn't work, they decide that they need to take the next step, and they're scheming to kill him. It looks like from this last line that they're trying to be respectful about when they kill him uh, by not doing it during the festival, but really this is one more place where their selfish desires are outweighing Jesus's agenda. They don't want to confront Jesus when all of the people are around, because with the gathering of the people for Passover in Jerusalem, there's this heightened nationalistic energy that comes because people are excited to come together. They're, They're celebrating freedom from the government that comes from their history. And so the religious leaders are concerned that if they address Jesus and arrest him during this time, people will riot and it will make them look bad. So they're holding off. They're, they're waiting until it's a more secret time to do that. You know, it's interesting when we look at the religious leaders and think about why they respond to Jesus the way that they do. Why are they so irritated with him? to the point that they would want to kill him. I think there's a couple of reasons. The first is this. He threatened their power and authority. You've got to realize that for years and years and years and years, the religious leaders are the ones that held all of the information, all of the um, religious rights, the people would come to them to get information that they needed about, their, about God and about their religious traditions. And so all of a sudden, this prophet shows up. And remember, there were, there were many false prophets that were around at the time of Jesus. So for them, they're responding to him just like he's another prophet, but a false prophet, not the true Messiah. And they see him as a threat to their authority. They've got this tight relationship with the government, and they don't want Jesus to get in the way of that. So they're they're threatened by him, so they reject him. The other reason I think that they reject him is because he challenges their religious practices. You know, think about the fact that we all hold religious tests because they're things that we've done over and over and over again for years and years and years. It's been passed down for generation to generation. For them, the same was true. Following the law was one of those traditions. That's what they had been taught. That's what they had devoted their entire lives to. It was something that, they, that was just part of their culture was the way that they treated women and foreigners. That both women and foreigners were see, seen as less. They were seen as outside. They were seen as underneath. Well, Jesus came and he threatened all of those things. And so studying this passage, one of the things that Mark does in his writing that's so brilliant is he invites us as the readers into the lives of each of the characters. And so I was trying to think for myself, Do I reject Jesus the way that the spiritual leaders did? I thought there was a great quote by Ralph Weibeck from Psychology Today. 
And he says this about change. Inertia, or a tendency to do nothing or to remain unchanged, is at the headwinds of any change that we make in our lives. As creatures of habit, we often have difficulty incorporating new changes into our routines, no matter how beneficial they are for us, because we tend to do the things that make us feel good, secure, and comfortable. You know, the more I thought about the religious leaders, the more I realized that maybe I can relate to them more than I would like to think. I think one way that I relate to them and I, is that I, um, I don't like my status quo challenged. They didn't like their status quo challenged because they were committed to their religious practices and to the way that they've always done things. I don't like my status quo challenged because I like to be right. I like to be right, especially in my marriage. In fact, I think that I'm right most of the time. <laughs> To the point, it's so ridiculous, it gets to the point that when I'm wrong, I feel like I have to make a big deal about pointing out that I was wrong, and then secretly remind myself of how often I'm right. <laughs> you laugh, but you do the same thing. <laughs> we want to be right in our relationships. We want to be right about the way we drive. You know we're all right when we're the ones merging and somebody else is doing something on the road. We like to be right. But at times, I think that we reject Jesus because we're so concerned about being right that we forget about the people on the other side of our argument. I think this is especially dangerous and prevalent right now when it comes to American politics. We are so worried at times about being right about whether we're a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent, that it's more important for us to let the other person know how right we are than it is to care about the fact that they're created in the image of God. We have shifted to a place in our culture where we're putting our agenda and the agenda of somebody else and our nationalistic desire above God's call for us to love our neighbors as ourselves. I would argue that we, like the religious leaders, reject Jesus because we want to be right. I think there's a second way that we reject Jesus, though. I think we reject him because he challenges our status quo in the way that we live. Have you noticed that if you look around the room, we are mostly white, suburban, middle-class Christians, and that the neighborhoods that we live in reflect what it looks like in this church, and the stores we shop in reflect what it looks like in our neighborhoods. That may be normal for us to, or the tendency for us as humans to gather around people that are just like us, but that's not the way that God wired us. He wired us for diversity. So what we do is we're all about loving our neighbors as long as our neighbors look and act and think just like we do. And if for some reason somebody from a different socioeconomic level or a different ethnic background, or somebody with a different view from us moves in next door, all of a sudden, we've shifted and would rather be around the people that are just like us. We reject Jesus 
because we like our status quo and we want to be around who we want to be around with. I'm not sure we're so different from the religious leaders. That's one character. Second character, we're going to jump ahead to Mark 14, 11 through 12. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand them over. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' closest followers, to turn him over to the religious leaders who want to kill him? That is unimaginable when you think about how close-knit that group of 12 were. But something was going on with Judas. What was happening inside of him that he was responding to Jesus this way? Well, I'd like to suggest that for him, while the religious leaders, it was all about rejecting Jesus, for Judas, it was all about watching out for his own self-interest. And one place that Judas was known to do this was when it came to money. It tells us right there in the passage that he handed him over, he handed Jesus over, or worked with the religious leaders to hand him over in exchange for money. Well, that's not the first time we've seen that. The other gospel writers one of the, um, talk about the fact that Judas actually was the treasurer for the disciples. He's the one that, that held all the money that people gave them as they traveled from place to place to place. They were funded for the ministry that they did. But he skimmed money off the top. Judas was a greedy guy. He was all about getting what he wanted, at, and he used Jesus to do it. But it wasn't just about his greed. I also think that Judas responded to Jesus because Jesus threatened Judas's own agenda. You see, Judas was all about being part of a group of people that came as the conquerors that were going to overthrow the world, the Roman Empire, and put the Israelites on top. When Jesus came as the suffering servant and not as the conquering hero, that really pushed against Judas's agenda. And so he responded to Jesus out of self-interest. Got me thinking about whether I respond to Jesus out of self-interest. And I'll have to say that it was hard for me to think about um, relating to Judas. Who wants to relate to Judas? I mean, Judas is the person that goes down in history as the one that betrayed Jesus to his death. But it got me thinking. And one way I think that I can relate to Judas is that I think I'm motivated by my greed. It may not always be money, but I like to have what I like to have. And I would suggest so do you. When we receive things, we think they're ours and we should get to hold on to them tightly. Whether those are material items, whether those are positions that we hold at work or at home, whether those are gifts and talents that Jesus has given us, we feel like once we have them, they're ours to keep. You know, James K.A. Smith wrote a book called You Are What You Love, and he says this, To say you are what you love is synonymous with saying you are what you worship. The great reformer Martin Luther once said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. We become what we worship, 
because we worship what we love. It's not a question of whether you worship what you worship, which is why John Calvin refers to the human heart as an idol factory. We can't not worship but because we can't not love something as ultimate. Like Judas, we sometimes um, respond to Jesus out of our own self-interest because we want to worship what we want to worship. And oftentimes it's not him. I think there's a second way, though, that we can relate to Judas. And I think it's this. We don't want Jesus to get in the way of our own agenda. You know, for some of us, we claim that we don't really respond to Jesus in a greedy way, but I think sometimes we take our religious convictions and say that we're not greedy, and then we use the Bible to justify our actions, which is just a different form of self-interest. One way we do that is we talk about the value of being good stewards, because the Bible talks about that. And what we do is we decide that holding on to everything we have and not sharing it with others is justified. We're greedy. It's about our self-interest. Sometimes we'll spend money, but we'll spend it only if it goes to the, um, it's spent the way that we want it spent. We'll give our money to a church or an organization, but only if they do what we tell them we want them to do. We're, cons- we're responding to Jesus out of our self-interest. I want to suggest that why we don't typically think of ourselves as Judas-like characters, that Mark is pushing us to recognize that we too are in danger of responding to Jesus out of our self-interest. Third character lands right in the middle of these two stories. So Mark is, again, brilliant in his writing. He does, he does this sandwiching effect with a number of different passages where he'll take a principle and he'll put it at the top of the passage and the bottom of the passage, and then he'll put the contrast in the middle. That's what he's doing here. He's telling us the story of the religious leaders up at the top. He's telling us the story of Judas at the bottom. These are two ways that we can respond to Jesus, and he's contrasting it with the unnamed woman. Let's look at that passage, Mark 14, three through nine. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. First thing to note here. This woman is reclining at the table in the home of Simon the, or uh, Jesus is at Simon's house, Simon the leper's house, and this woman comes in with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume. We don't think about this sometimes because we, we live in a very different culture, but it was, it was unheard of for a woman to approach a man that she wasn't married to, let alone at somebody's house in the middle of a dinner gathering with a group of men. This was unheard of. The the courage that this woman showed to show up 
to visit Jesus tells us her level of commitment to him. Not only did she show up in the middle of the meal, but she brought with her this alabaster jar of expensive perfume. An alabaster jar was a jar that held either um, perfume or herbs, and in her case, it was holding, um, carrying pure nard. Nard was a very, very expensive perfume that was worth a year's worth of wages. Now imagine that for a minute. She shows her. She's going into this house. She's risking humiliation because she's, she's approaching Jesus in front of all of these men. She brings a jar with a year's full of wages in it. She pours it over his head, and then she breaks it to symbolize that she doesn't want to just give him most of the jar of expensive oil. She wants to give him all of the jar of expensive oil. Can you imagine if you took a year's worth of your salary and you brought it up and left it here on the stage to benefit Jesus? Shoot, I can't, I can't even imagine in my selfishness taking a month's worth of wages and leaving them here. Or maybe sometimes a week's worth of wages. It is significant that this woman put a year's worth of wages into honoring Jesus. That's why the people that are there react the way that they did. Can we grab that one more time? They said, thank you. They said this. Uh, she broke the jar, poured it on his head. Some of those who were, present, who were present said indignantly, why the waste of this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and given the money to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Now, Mark doesn't tell us this, but this account is in all four gospels. And the other gospel writers would say that the people that are there are the, the disciples. So the disciples are around, she breaks the jar, and they're rebuking her. Now think about it. How many times has Jesus taught that the poor will always be with you? You need to care for the poor. Don't, don't waste money because we need to care for the poor. If you think about it, it kind of makes sense. They're like, hey, lady, you're, this woman, she's, she's wasting a whole year's worth of wages that if she would have sold that perfume could have been used to care for the poor in our community. But Jesus, so they're rebuking her. But it's interesting then how Jesus responds. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. The poor will, we will, you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. At first glance, it looks like Jesus is negating what he has said over and over again about the poor. But that's not what Mark wants us to take away. What he wants us to take away is the fact that, yes, it is vital that we care for the poor. That is something that Jesus has a huge heart for. But he doesn't want us to miss what's happening here. That Jesus, the Messiah, who has come to do away with all the brokenness of the world, including the fact that we have poor among us, is sitting right before us. He doesn't want us to miss the good of caring for the poor with the great of recognizing who Jesus is. And so he's praising her for that. And then this is my favorite line of this passage. She did what she could. You know, we think, we read that and it sounds like it was just a little bit. Like, oh, she did what she could because she could have done so much more. But in Greek, it's actually translated as, with what she had, she did. She gave everything. 
This woman saw Jesus for who he was. The disciples throughout Mark continue to miss it. They still don't quite have it. And so Mark's illustrating again here, here's a woman who's marginalized, who the writer doesn't even name, that sees who Jesus is and is so convinced that he is the Messiah. She knows that he's the true north that the compass points to, that she gives everything. Uh, She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Jesus, again, is predicting his own death. She didn't know that he was about to die, but he did. So he continues to tell us that over and over again. And he says, truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You know what's fascinating about that? Two things. The first is... Uh, Jesus points out that um, what she has done will be remembered. She's the unnamed woman in the house of Simon the leper. When somebody is named in a passage, it shows the importance of who that individual is. Yet Jesus isn't saying, from now on, Simon the leper will be remembered by all. He's saying, from now on, the acts of the woman will be remembered by all. The other thing that's interesting is that the reason, one of the reasons that she's not named is because it's not her that he wants us to remember, it's her actions. So that's one of the questions. What happened inside of her that she was so devoted to Jesus that that's how she responded to him? Well, I think a couple things. One is this. She believed that Jesus was who he said he was. Again and again and again and again. It's the religious leaders, it's the disciples who miss Jesus as the Messiah. But it's the women, it's the marginalized, it's the poor, it's the broken, it's those with leprosy that see him. She responds out of devotion because she recognizes Jesus for who he is. I also think she responded the way she did because she was all about pursuing his interests. Notice that she didn't come and pour oil on him after he gave something to her. It wasn't an exchange of goods and services. She pursued him, risked humiliation, because she knew who he was, and she was convinced of his agenda and her desire to enter into that. That's a shift. That's one of the contrasts that Mark wants us to see between the religious leaders in Judas and this woman. For the religious leaders in Judas, they were all about their own agenda. For the woman, she was all about Jesus' agenda. And that makes all the difference in the world when we're trying to figure out if we're willing to follow the Messiah. So how do we, what does it look like for us to respond out of devotion? You know, here's the funny thing. When I first started studying this passage and I was trying to put myself in the the place of the different characters, I thought, hey, this will be easy. I will be able to relate to the woman And I will not be able to relate to Judas and the religious leaders. The more I studied, the more I realized I am just like Judas and the religious leaders in the way that I respond to Jesus. 
and I'm not sure I know how to respond to Jesus like the unnamed woman. And I think that's a tension for all of us to wrestle with. But I have a couple thoughts on things that I think she did. The first is this. She loved God with her whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. She made him the one thing. She didn't care about anybody else's reaction. She didn't care about the humiliation she may face. She didn't care about her agenda or her money. She, didn't, she wasn't worried about her. She was always worried about him. She always had her eye on Jesus. She knew that he was the true north, that he knows where he's going, and that she was willing to follow him. I think we're invited into that same space. Here's the second way, I think, that we can relate to her. Let me go back to loving God. We need to figure out ways to make God our one thing. We need to wrestle through the things in our lives that get in the way of allowing him to be our one thing. Sometimes for us, that's our money. Sometimes for us, it's our comfort. Sometimes for us, it's our, it's our desire to get what we want when we want it. So my challenge to us is to think about what are the things that are in the way of making Jesus our one thing and how can we move those aside to put him back as the focus. But I think there's another thing that we can do to be devoted to Jesus. We can love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, but we can love our neighbors as ourselves. I don't think the second of these is as easy as we want to make it. I think we let ourselves off the hook because we live in neighborhoods that are surrounded by people that look and act just like us. I think we think we're doing a really good job of loving others, but I think we probably have a long ways to go. If we really want to look out for the self-interest of others, this is what it means. It means instead of criticizing refugees and immigrants, we actually see them as our neighbors who are made in the image of God. It means instead of judging the circumstances of our homeless community, we work alongside them to seek justice and love mercy. It means instead of isolating those who are transgender or same-sex attracted, we invite them over for dinner and include them in our social circle. We express our devotion to Jesus by loving God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving all of our neighbors as ourselves. So that leaves us with something to wrestle with. How's our commitment to Jesus? Where are we responding like the religious leaders in rejecting him? Where are we responding like Judas and we're responding out of our own self-interest? And where are we like the woman and we're devoted to him? Jesus and, or Ju, sorry, Peter and the disciples wrestled through this same question. We see it if we jump forward to Mark 14, 27 through 31. 
Jesus says, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. But Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Mark uses the story of Peter as a warning light. And the warning light is this. We all think we're more devoted to Jesus than we are. We all think we're more devoted to Jesus than we are. James K.A. Smith says this. The reminder for us is this. If the heart is like a compass, an erratic homing device, then we need to regularly calibrate our hearts, tuning them to be directed to the creator, our magnetic north. It's crucial for us to recognize that our ultimate loves, longings, desires, and cravings are learned. And because love is a habit, our hearts are calibrated through imitating exemplars and being immersed in practices that over time index our hearts to a certain end. We learn to love then not primarily by acquiring information about what we should love, but rather through practices that form the habits of how we love. These sorts of practices are pedagogies of desire, not because they are like lectures that inform us, but because they are rituals that form and direct our affections. One of the rituals we practice together that help us recalibrate towards true north is communion. It's a time for us to do some self-reflection, to think about where our allegiance to Jesus lands, to think about whether he truly is the one that's pointing us in the direction we're going and if we're really following him. And so before we share in communion, we want to give you an opportunity to sit and reflect. We're going to spend just a couple of minutes in silence, and I really want you to take a few minutes to be in the presence of Jesus and to figure out the places that you may be rejecting him, responding him out of self-interest, and where there are places that you may may be able to turn towards him with a deeper sense of devotion. Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Our weekend services are on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thanks for listening.